Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Bird. Tonight, we hit rewind and travel back four decades with author Fiona McQuarrie to talk about her new book, Mixtape 21 Songs from 1975 to 1985, and find out what tracks make her list. Well, she was front and center in Alberta's COVID 19 response before she was let go by new premier Daniel Smith, now the former. Chief Medical Health Officer Dr. Dina Henshaw is heading to BC to take up a public health role here. One of her Alberta predecessors weighs in. But first, in already turbulent times for airlines big and small in this country, you can add another issue of pilot shortage. What's causing it? What impact will it have on the rest of us? You know, it's been a real uh, tough year for the travel industry, you know weather events, travel restrictions, everyone flying. You know, the travel industry has been navigating some really tough times. Well, guess what? There is another issue at hand right now that you may not have been aware of, and that is a lack of qualified pilots. According to Transport Canada, in a typical pre-pandemic year, uh, roughly 1,100 pilot licenses were issued. Um, And that, you know, when complemented by foreign trained pilots, that's usually enough. That's usually enough to satisfy the big the big carriers, you know, WestJet and Air Canada, and make sure that there are enough for everyone else, down to those regional and chartered cargo airlines and so on. But as um, you know, as we all remember from the early days of the pandemic, everyone stopped flying, right? I mean, that was it. So we knew, I mean, I was working with someone at the time whose husband was at WestJet. They were laid off or at least furloughed for a while. Um, I imagine a lot of pilots who were heading towards retirement decided maybe this was the right time to do so. Um, And as a result of the pandemic, the number of pilots getting their paperwork done, getting their training accomplished and qualifying and so on also plummeted. So you had this sort of exodus of pilots from the industry in Canada, and you had far few, too few new pilots coming in. Um, Government data shows less than 500 licenses were awarded in 2020. That fell to 300 in 2021 and just 238 last year alone. So you can see where the problem is. So how do you fix a problem like that? I mean, that's that's one of those issues. And it's not just in piloting, obviously. The, the issue with older workers is something that we're seeing right across the board. In fact, it's something we haven't been speaking about a lot when it comes to the worker shortage out there. Uh, it's not that workers have suddenly disappeared or everyone's lying on their couch or no one wants to work. A lot of people, we have an aging workforce and we're starting to see the impacts of it. You know, we saw the impacts of it uh, beforehand and now we're seeing the impacts of it accelerate like so much during the pandemic. Uh, The acceleration took place. So we simply don't have enough of a lot of people out there these days to take over from those who are leaving. And uh, the pandemic accelerated that as well. So pilots is another big issue here. Uh, We do have a pilot standing by, David Boston, who has 25 years experience. He runs an Edmonton-based aviation job board called Pilot Career Center. And uh, he joins us now from Mexico. He's going to tell us all about this. David, thanks for joining us. We were just, I was just talking about the fact that we've had, that we're, we're in the middle of a pilot shortage now. And one can imagine that it's both a question of, you know, what happened during the pandemic, but also just a trend we're seeing right across the workforce, which is aging workers are aging out. Yeah, um, I think it's much more to do with the uh, pandemic and the growth of airlines in Canada than it is the aging uh, population. I think they plan for that a fair bit ahead of time. So I think it's more this um, perfect storm we've 
been put in after the COVID pandemic and then the return to travel for Canadians? Yeah, I mean, we're seeing far fewer licenses, right, being issued. That was one thing that stood out to me uh, from that government data that it was, you know, uh, only 500 in 2020 and down to 238 in uh, in 2021. That's that's not a lot. Or last year, rather, in 2022. Yeah, that's correct. And I looked at the, that data and I thought, okay, 2021, 2022, or at least to the end of 2022, you know, COVID was still prevalent and people weren't supposed to be in close you know, proximity and close quarters. So it didn't surprise me, but the the last year or so, the really low numbers did shock me and shocked our company. So it, there is a, a problem there. And I think it yeah. stems from, personally, I think it stems from, it's, it's really expensive to become a pilot. It's a fantastic job. It's a fantastic career, but the amount of money outlay you have to make is significant. Um, it's over $100,000, probably closer to $120,000. And uh, to take that, amount of loans and then to be um, paid pretty poorly for the first four to five years where you couldn't right. even pay off those loans, probably really struggle with rent. Um, I think it's, it's a tough, tough go for the, for those of, for those of us out there that actually research this ahead of time at the age of 18, 19 um, and look at the numbers it, it doesn't work. Yeah, I can imagine with interest rates higher too, just borrowing money is more expensive. Rent is up and every cost, the cost of everything is up. So if you're wanting to take that expensive plunge into piloting, you have to make even more calculations now than even a few years ago. Exactly. And and we're talking subsistence, like, you know, living in a really small place with likely four or five other pilots. And like I said, not being able to pay off your loan, just being able to survive for a number of years, it's, it's a tough go. Um, you really, really want to, you know, need to have the desire to do it. And obviously, you know, post pandemic families are much more closer together. And I think parents are involved in these decisions and um, you know, it affected a lot of people. And I, I don't think they see the financial reward in uh, making that uh, investment. So who's feeling it? Because, uh, you know, I know it's sort of a stratified system, right? Those who make it to WestJet and Air Canada are kind of have arrived, as you put it, gone through that process, paid their dues. Uh, so who's who's feeling the brunt of, of this pilot shortage? Um, to be honest, I think every company is right now. Um, you know, we're in touch with, um, you know, human resources teams from companies all across Canada. And they're all in a panic mode because most of their pilots are flying uh, above their schedule into overtime um, to make the schedule work, um, the published schedule work to keep the passengers happy. Um, that's that's an, the ir- ironic thing here is, um, you know, you see a lot of the news about cancellations and the public being really upset. But uh, the pilots definitely are doing their best to keep everything on schedule and keep all the schedules going. But we've reached, like I said, the perfect storm here where... There's so many airlines and they're all growing and Air Canada is losing a number of pilots to retirement that there's so much hiring and there's not enough pilots. So um, each company is going to be short for the next year or so, I would guess, possibly longer. David, what can you do? I mean, it takes a while to train pilots. It's expensive, as you pointed out, to uh, to go through the process. I mean, the rewards are good once you get there eventually. But uh, what can be done to try and alleviate the pressure here? Yeah, it's a really, really good question. And uh, I hope you have an answer for me at the end of this, to be honest. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so 
for years and years, Canadian aviation has worked like clockwork um, relatively well where pilots would go to schools and get all their licenses and then normally very often would go up north to gain experience, spend a two, a couple of years up north um, doing that. And then um, their times and their experience would allow them to apply to the regional airlines and the larger airlines, and they would slowly come into those airlines and then more and more graduates from schools would continue this tradition. Um, it's just, it just so happens post COVID that model is completely broken. Um, there's nowhere near enough pilots to do that. There's a load of um, companies in remote parts of Canada, Northern Canada that are really wondering where they're going to get their pilots from. Um, and also the airlines, because we have a, a great deal more, pilot, uh, sorry, airlines than we did before COVID started. We've got a whole new market called the ultra low cost um, airline right. market with, and they're all taking new airplanes and um, employing new pilots. And when a new pilot comes in who actually has the experience to get through these, this uh, pretty challenging training, um, it takes two to three months to get them online and certified. And the, the interesting thing is in Canada, when a pilot leaves a company, they only have to give two months, oh, sorry, two weeks notice. So it's often a pilot will right. get notice, give two weeks notice. And then that company that loses that pilot, it's probably going to take them two months to three months to train someone to replace it. And this is happening day after day after day. Um, our, our company that you mentioned, it's not just a pilot job board. We give consulting and uh, preparation for pilots to get the jobs and to apply and have effective resumes, cover letters, and interview prep skills. And at the same time, we also um, allow companies to promote themselves on our website to pilots. So we're in contact with both sides. And the pilot group so seems you know static. Yeah. yeah. It's a really position to be in, to be honest. And the pilots are ecstatic. It's the best market they've seen. They're not looking at um, the traveling public and what might be canceled this summer or this spring. They're looking at, wow, my career is like, gone two to three years faster than I expected. And I can, you know, look at this job or this job, which they never thought they could attain at this stage. So the pilots are super so, excited. The uh, companies what about, are- What about for the, are, are struggling? What about for the rest of us? I mean, what about for, for the flying public? How are we, I mean, I don't think, I think we've seen a lot of different factors in play when it comes to delays and cancellations and so on. But do you think this is going to get worse on that side? I mean, if there's a pilot shortage, I imagine. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, it's, Definitely going to get worse in, in our opinion at our company um, from what we see, what we hear, the numbers, um, what, you know, the aircraft deliveries with the airlines, it's going to get way worse over the next two to 10 months. I would say the summer is going to be interesting for sure. Now the traveling public looks and says, Hey, you know, this is terrible. We're going to have all these cancellations, but at the same time, there's this added benefit of this new market sector of the ultra low cost with the loads of flights for really affordable prices that didn't exist in 2019. So depends how you look at it. I mean, there's lots of options for the traveling public. Unfortunately, um, not every flight is going to go. That's the, that's the yeah. issue. And we're going to have to, it's, it's the, I think it's the randomness of it, the randomness of it that becomes, becomes the issue, right? It's uh it's not knowing, I guess. I mean, the airlines don't know either if they're understaffed, they're not going to know when, if there's weather or there's delays. I mean, I think everyone out there understands that pilots can only work a certain amount of hours, then it becomes unsafe. And we don't, you know, you don't want a pilot flying in those conditions. So I think everyone understands despite the frustration. Yeah, and you're you're right. Like when in the winter times with the weather changes or maybe a mechanical delay, that kind of thing. There's normally at every company there's normally a, a reserve 
group of pilots ready and reserve flight attendants ready just in case these things happen. But though that workforce is diminishing, like um, there's going to be cancellations because they won't be able to find the replacements when uh, these other pilots' duties are exceeded kind of thing. Yeah. And of course, as you well know, everyone wants, it looks like, last time I was at the airport just recently, it looks like everyone wants to fly these days or everyone wants to go somewhere, well, David Boston. Yeah. Thanks so much. Well, go exactly. ahead. This, this is the thing that um, people don't understand or don't realize is, you know, the COVID pandemic stopped everyone from flying for close to two years, maybe three years. And now they want to fly. Everybody wants to fly. They want to see their relatives. They want to fly to Mexico. There's a huge demand and a bunch of companies have entered the market to address that demand. And then we have our established carriers. And like, uh, I'm not sure if I mentioned earlier, but then you have the remote communities up north that have essential services right. that they need where they need air ambulance services and they need food, uh, cargo shipments and that type of thing. And it's all worked until 2019. And now we have a real problem because we don't have the flight crews to fill these airplanes. And you can't just take someone from a college and just say, okay, now you're a captain, uh, Find a king air up no. in the Arctic. It just doesn't work. So this <laughs> well, is where we're at. It's, it's nobody's. I don't think it's anyone's fault. I'm not pointing blame. I don't, I don't think it's the airline's fault. And it's just we're in a perfect storm right now, and we've you know we didn't yeah. forecast this, but we did forecast a pilot shortage just due to the the low income. Um, you know, let's say for the first ten years, not attracting enough candidates. So you mentioned like a solution. We don't know what the solution is, but um, definitely. In Canada, the, the numbers don't work. So in some form, um, paid training for pilots where they're... David, you know, I'm going to have to leave it at that because we've run, we've run out of oh. time. It's fine. No, I, I mean, hopefully you come, hopefully something good happens, but I, I gather we'll be in for a bit, of a bit of a turbulent ride for the time being. Thanks so much for your time tonight. No problem. We'll talk to you soon. We're going to hit rewind now like we like to do. Uh, once in a while, uh, trucker Dan was uh, had a had a had a good quote. We've been talking about KTEL tonight, KTEL products, KTEL albums. I was mentioning the first one that I bought ran out at about the age of nine, really only so I could own uh, Rupert Holmes's "Escape," the Pina Colada song, which I have to say did not end up on my next guest's mixtape from uh, from seventy five to eighty five. Uh, but trucker Dan wanted to know about this uh, KTEL album that had a robot on the front. I looked it up; it was called Music Machine. I, I knew someone who had it, or I've seen it in a bin somewhere for a dollar sometime in the last 35 years. And it included such classics as Blinded by the Light by Manfred Mann and uh, Feels Like the First Time by Foreigner and uh, Car Wash by Rose Royce. So there you go, Blast from the Past. Some of those songs, not all of them, some of them would have made it on a good mixtape from that era, wouldn't they have? You know, if you grew up at that time, there, is, there was nothing cooler than the mixtape. You know, the message from maker to listener. Right, I made many mixtapes over the years. Many, many for many, many people. Sometimes they were for a buddy. Uh, sometimes they were for a love interest, someone you wanted to impress. Who knows? A 60-minute or 90-minute dedication, right? The 60 minutes were always easier, but it never felt like long enough. 90 minutes was a lot of music to fill. That would take some time to put together. Now, what you put on those tapes, as I mentioned, took some considerable thought, right? Now, imagine trying to boil down a whole decade of tunes, especially one that brought us as many different kinds of music as 75 to 85 did boil it all down to just 21 songs. You know, we had everything in that era from, you know, punk to disco, new wave to new romantic rap, reggae, ska, rock and roll, and many, many guises. Uh, so what do you do? How do you boil it all down to 21 songs? Well, my next guest has done 
exactly that. Her latest book is called Mixtape, 21 Songs from 1975 to 1985, a follow-up to a similar effort covering the decade prior, 1964 to 1974. Fiona Corey was a longtime uh, music reporter for the Vancouver Sun and Vancouver Province, and she has distilled all these great songs into some really interesting picks. I knew almost all of them, but not all of them. I owned a lot of them but certainly not all of them. And she joins us now to tell us all about it. Fiona, thank you so much. Thank you for asking me. So tell me about mixtapes. You must, I, you know, I went looking, all my stuff is back either in Montreal or Ottawa, but there are mixtapes. There are still mixtapes. I can remember the, the, the sequence of songs on mixtapes that I had as a kid. I can too. And I still have a lot of the mixtapes I made back in that era, Partly because uh, some of the stuff that's on them, amazingly, still is not on Spotify or some other streaming source. So I'm hanging on to them until uh, <laughs> until I can't get those songs <laughs> anywhere else. Yeah, it's amazing to think that there are things that aren't available, but there are. Like, there's certain mixes and so on that you just never heard again, right? Exactly. So tell me about choosing the tracks for this one, because it really is an eclectic mix, but just... Uh, grosso modo, as they say in French, what would you, what, how, what was the, what were you trying? What was the unifying theme for what you were trying to achieve with all of them? Oh gosh, well, I would hesitate to say that there was a unifying theme because one of the things that's so distinctive about this particular decade is what a wide variety of music there was on the charts. Um, I, I guess if I had to boil it down, I would say there were two basic criteria. Uh, one of them was that the song had to be have been covered, because that gave me a little more scope to talk about uh, where the song went after it was originally a hit. But there are one or two songs in the book that didn't meet that criteria, but I put <laughs> I put them in anyway. Um, the other one was writing that intensely about a song means spending a lot of time with it. So they also had to be songs that I personally enjoyed. Um, and that th- those were the two guiding principles. And also because it covers a decade, I tried to have at least one song from each year in that decade. It's your mixtape, you know? Yeah, that's that's the beauty of a mixtape. You get to put on it whatever you want. That was the whole point, right? Let's start with this. Listen, when I was in Edmonton in 1980, my mom worked at the CBC. I always grew up in Montreal. We moved to Edmonton for for about a year. And, you know, I didn't have a lot of friends. My friend was my radio. You know what you're like when you're, when you're young. Mm-hmm. And yep. this song blew, blew me away. This was one of my favorite tracks, Doug and the Slugs. Now, I was at that weird age where I couldn't figure out why that song wasn't on American Top 40 because it was so good. But it wasn't. But it was sort of my, I think it was the first song, that and maybe Bruce Coburn, where I'm like, that's a Canadian song. And mm-hmm. that's ours. And isn't it awesome? How did that make your cut? Uh, partly because I was working at the Vancouver Sun when Doug and the Slugs were starting to rise up to national prominence. Uh, so I had a bit of a personal uh, affiliation with the song. But I also feel like Doug and the Slugs are really underrated uh, in Canadian music. They have this reputation as kind of being a good-time party band. And, you know, that's fair enough because they were and are an excellent live act. They're a lot of fun to watch. But I think what gets overlooked in that is that the songs that Doug wrote are amazingly good songs. They have so many layers going on. They have so many uh, levels uh, of nuance within the lyrics. And for that chapter, I interviewed Simon Kendall, the keyboard player for the, the band, and John Burton, who is one of the guitarists. And I was really interested to find out that Doug never had any formal musical training and didn't play an instrument himself. 
which they both said made his song, were part of what made his song so interesting, is that he heard the songs in ways that a trained musician might not have heard them. And I think they deserve a lot more credit for the uh, their the incredible songwriting and for the uh, the body of work that they have. And it's really nice to see now that there's a documentary about them. Uh, I'm glad that others are uh, recognizing what a fantastic band they were and giving them some of the attention that I think they deserve. Yeah, it just felt like the timing was a bit wrong, maybe a little bit, just there was a lot going on in the early 80s in music, there's sort of shifting styles into new wave and so on, and it all, all got very synthy uh, all of a sudden. And uh, and as always, you know, it's, it was always hard for Canadian bands to break it in the US, especially if they were seen as being a bit on the eclectic side, right? Absolutely. And one thing that was really interesting to me when I was researching that chapter is I went into a couple of newspaper databases and looked at U.S. newspapers uh, for reviews of their albums. And they had a couple of albums that were released in the U.S. And what came across to me is that the writers and the uh, reporters in the U.S. really didn't know what to make of them because there wasn't any popular band in the U.S. that they could really say, this is what Doug and the Slugs are like. Uh, The closest that they seemed to come was Huey Lewis and the News, which I can sort of (laughs) see was sort of that party good time atmosphere, but uh, they didn't fit into a neat slot, which is one of their strengths, I think, that they were so distinctive and so innovative. But it also, I think, hurt them a bit commercially because some uh, parts of the industry literally didn't know what to do with them. Here's a band that uh, never lacked for critical acclaim, The Talking Heads. Yeah, what what a hit that was, eh? Wow, I mean, it, it's um, there were so many Talking Heads songs, but that one really was really a, a special track for them. And yet, you were interested in it because it actually far predates its success, which was 1983. It was written back in 1977. Yes, that's right. Uh, there is a tape you can find it on YouTube of uh, a rehearsal <laughs> tape from back in that day, and it came out of a jam that the four band members were doing in their rehearsal space. And uh, you can tell that from that tape that the basic rhythm is there, but the lyrics are very different. And it's a fascinating tape to listen to because you can hear them sort of working through the parts of the song and figuring out what goes where. And uh, it also turned out to be uh, an important song for them uh, because it was one of their biggest hit singles, but it also came at a time when there was a lot of tension within the band over songwriting credits and uh, choices of tracks for albums and that sort of thing. So it was a very big hit for them, but it also sort of marked the point where things started to go a bit sideways, not because anyone was deliberately trying to stab anyone in the back or anything like that, but they had some, they had some concerns about where their music was going to go after that. Yeah, there was a lot of, obviously, a lot of talent between uh, between the Weymouth uh, couple as well as uh, Chris Francetina Weymouth and David Burns. So you can imagine the different musical musical influencers that were going on. Fiona McQuarrie is with us uh, this hour. We're having a great time here. Hit Rewind tonight. We're going back to 1975 to 1985 to talk about uh, the tracks that made her mixtape. This is one of them, Love is Alive by Gary Wright. You may know him better for Dreamweaver. But this was uh, this was a good one as well. Just quickly before Fiona, before we get to it, people, of course, we have listeners in Vancouver. Doug and the Slugs, you know, um, Stephen North fan says Doug and the Slugs played my high school graduation in the eighties. Can you imagine how good that how good that would be? Uh, and Barbie Barbie and Burnaby says Doug Doug and the Slugs one of my all time favorites. Saw them live many times. So yeah, that's a real 
that's a great one. I hadn't really heard. I didn't know that Gary Wright song particularly well. How did? Uh, but it sounds like such a such a quintessential '70s track. And did David Foster play on it? He did. He it was one of his wow. first uh, professional jobs. Uh, he played keyboards on it. But what's particularly interesting about that track is, and the album that it's on is that it's an all keyboard track. It was one of the first uh, hit singles to use a keyboard bass, and on the demo, Gary Wright played all the instruments himself. Uh, and they were all keyboards, which was really unusual at that time. Yeah. I mean, here, here, quickly, the reason I recognized it is because of this. It was sampled in the early 90s by a band called Third Bass in a song called Words of Wisdom. Yes, that's right. Yes, it was. Here it comes. <laughs> it's a bit, <laughs> has a bit more of a bit more of a groove to it there. But yeah, it was sampled. So it did, It and it was remade many times, wasn't it? Yes, it's been covered quite a bit. Um it's uh, it's a fascinating song. Um, part of the uh, one of the things that I was quite uh, amused to find out about it is part of the reason that the bass line has those spaces in between the notes is that yeah. Gary Wright was playing all the instruments himself, and he needed to leave those spaces in the bass line so he could play the other <laughs> keyboards at the same time. And there's some wonderful yeah. footage of him uh, playing it live uh, at uh, stadium concerts in the U.S. in the summer of uh, 1975, I believe. And that was also a time when technology had advanced to the point where keyboards could be portable, where the player could wear them with a guitar strap around right. the neck and move around the stage instead of being stuck behind a static keyboard. So it's kind of interesting to see that development as well. Yeah, what a product of its time. Speaking of songs that were just absolutely influential and songs that involved keyboards, uh, Kraftwerk, Trans Europe Express. This was one of those tracks when it came out, like if you were listening to, uh, I don't know, you know, listening to Frampton Comes Alive and then that came on, <laughs> it was a real departure, wasn't it? But Kraftwerk ended up being one of the most influential bands of the era. Absolutely, yes. And the place I initially discovered that track uh, back in the day was there uh, used to be a music video show on uh, Shaw Cable on at midnights on Friday or Saturday, and they played the video for it. And I remember sitting there looking at it going, what is this? <laughs> Because it literally was like nothing I had ever be heard before, and the visuals were so striking. I was like, "Oh, what? Where did this come from?" Yeah, I, I mean, this is one of the, it's, what's interesting about your mixtape is there are sort of songs that were more obscure, artists even that were more obscure, but certainly Kraftwerk were one of those bands that ended up having an incredible influence mm-hmm. on. So, I mean, you hear Kraftwerk in almost every genre of music that came after it. But at the time, they were obscure. <laughs> they were this yeah, strange <laughs> European band that played all synthesizers, and there was there was nothing like that. How and did then they, make they just gradually would, oh, grew to yeah. be more influential. Yeah, I, I guess we grew into them, not the other way yeah, around. Pretty much. How did you pick Trans Europe Express? They have a you know they have a lot of kind of cool tracks, uh, Pocket Calculator and Robot uh, Computer Love. But that, that but that one's really I guess the pinnacle. Absolutely. I chose it because it, to me, it sort of represented uh, kind of a, along the same lines as Love is Alive, one of the songs that showed uh, more electronic instruments coming into popular music. And also because it, it went on in its own way to influence uh, hip hop and rap, because it was one of the, uh, the albums that, uh, that the hip hoppers in New York City used to play and sample when they were uh, putting their own music together. So it ended up having influences 
it also influenced new wave music all around the world <laughs> so much. Yeah, yeah. Uh, actually, we have we have Africa about as Planet Rock, that which a song that it, not only did it influence it, it essentially interpolate interpolated it. Mm-hmm. I think it must have been Chris Christigau at the Village Voice, or one of those who describes how you know the rest of the people around where Africa Babata would show up. He'd show up with these German electronic records, and people were like, "What are you playing?" <laughs> and then, of course, they all started to love it, right? Yeah, it's it's an incredibly influential record, and I have to say, because it's so influential, I thought about leaving it out because one of the really? things that I talk about in the introduction to the book is I didn't want to write about the same songs that everybody else has written about. Um, like at my high school, the three biggest acts on planet Earth were Led Zeppelin, Queen, and the Village People. And right. there's been so much written about all of those groups already that I didn't want to go over what had already been gone over. And for that reason, I was a little, hmm, about Kraftwerk. But then eventually I decided I couldn't leave it out because it influenced so much else that came after it. Yeah, and and it's still. I mean, I listen to Trans Europe Express. I still have it on my, you know, on my on my iPod or on my phone. It's. I mean, it's still a great song. Oh, it's it's brilliant. It's brilliant. Yeah, I think I like it more now than I did then, to be honest. <laughs> oh, it feels like it's 1983 all over again. Owner of a lonely heart. There, we're talking to Fiona McQuarrie, a music journalist, author. Her new book is called a Mixtape: Twenty One Songs from 1975 to 1985. That is one of them. Owner of a lonely heart by Yes. There were some really interesting eclectic selections in there, given the other songs. Like when I was reading down the list of the chapters, I found it was surprising to bump into to Yes or Paul Young, because those were songs that were kind of, they were pop songs. They were pop hits at the time. Uh, how did Owner of a Lonely Heart make the cut? Partly because I wanted to know how it happened, because uh, at my high school, there were a bunch of really serious Yes heads who were very much into the prog. And I remember when that record came out, <laughs> the first thing I did was I actually went uh, to the record store and looked because I couldn't believe it was Yes. I mean, the vocalist sounded like John Anderson, but this was not the Yes from my high school years. And I really want, I, that really intrigued me. Like, why would a band that had such a huge reputation in the prog field do this complete left turn and make this utterly exquisite pop record, and not just an utterly exquisite pop record, but also one that sounded so much of the time because of Trevor Horn's production with all the interesting little sound effects all over the place and the sort of the arena-sized guitar, and I I wanted to know, how did this happen? And so it was quite a fascinating story to dig into because I remember some of my uh, proggy Yes friends being appalled that Yes had sold out. And I don't think they did sell out. Uh, Trevor Horn was actually in Yes for a while as the vocalist during one of the times when John Anderson uh, had quit and gone off to do other things. Um, So it wasn't a case of a band that thought they were washed up going out and hiring the hit producer of the day to make them popular again. It was actually kind of a more organic development with them, and it was quite a natural progression. Yeah, it's interesting when you 
provide a counter narrative because I think the idea always was that you know Trevor Horn had been in the Buggles, right? They had made uh, mm-hmm. Video Killed the Radio Star. He'd done all that work with Frankie Goes to Hollywood. I guess that would, was about to come, but he was really sort of the producer of the day. So when you saw his name there, you figured, ah, this isn't even yes. They just made a Trevor Horn record. And I was really fascinated by your story because I didn't even know that he had been in the band already. We actually have a copy of a, a bit of a sound of the demo that it was based on, the song. Yeah. <laughs> That sounds like me singing in the shower. Uh, but it was amazing to hear where that song came from, because you can really hear, you could see why they were so excited about turning that into something big. Yes, yes. It's a very strong song. Uh, and uh, it did go through some uh, iterations and some evolutions on its way to being the song that became the hit. Um, John Anderson, according to some of the sources that I consulted, uh, refused to sing some of the original lyrics on that demo and wrote his own lyrics. So there was a bit of, you know, back and forthing before it became what it is. But it's a it's an incredible pop record. Yeah, and it certainly doesn't sound like I remember my dad had a forty five of Roundabout, and of course I had Owner of a Lonely Heart, and those were two very dissimilar dissimilar little little songs. But that's a great track. One of the ones you picked, and you picked some ones that I absolutely adore. So back in the mid eighties, I don't know how I fell upon the song. I think my dad actually, my dad was in the music business. I think he may have landed on it first, but I loved the whole, the moon by the water boys. Yeah. What a great, uh, what a great, great, great song. I mean, Montreal was, was beneficial in some ways because a lot of songs that were big in the UK and in Europe sort of came to Montreal first. I'm not sure why that was, but they sort of test run ran them in Montreal before the rest of the country. I'm sure that changed as the eighties progressed. But that song was, was you know, played in Montreal quite a bit. And I, I gather it wasn't really much of a hit. I, I, w- I was actually living in Scotland, where they're from, the band The Waterboys, when it became a hit again, you know, years later. Mm-hmm. Um, what an interesting story behind a very great song. Yes. Yeah, I don't remember it being played on the radio here at all, either, when it originally no. came out. Um, but it's, it sort of grew organically. Uh, I remember other Waterboys songs being played, mostly on FM stations and... Uh, alternative stations, but uh, yeah, it uh, wasn't a hit in the UK initially either. And what really gave it its commercial impetus was it started being played in Ibiza, uh, in clubs, and uh, it got so popular there that uh, the record company re-released it in uh, the UK, and uh, it became a hit, finally. Yeah, and, and deservedly, it is a, it is one of those songs that deserved to be pl- to be much bigger than it was even back in 1985. Yes, and one of the great things about uh, researching the Waterboys is that Mike Scott, the leader and the man who wrote that song, uh, is very open about his working methods, and he wrote quite a bit about how this song came about in his autobiography. And I just about fell off the chair laughing when I read his description of how it happened, which was he was out in New York City walking on the street with his girlfriend at the time, and she said to him, is it really hard to write songs? And he didn't want to let her know uh, that it was really easy, for him at least. So uh, he looked up at the sky and there was a moon. And suddenly the phrase, the whole of the moon popped into his head. And he said, come on, we're going back to the hotel. And he wrote the song, he wrote the song when they got back to the hotel to show his girlfriend how easy it was to write a song. <laughs> Showing off, right? I mean, Pretty it, much, yeah. it's impossible. If someone, I mean, obviously, I remember the part about Brigadoon, and but the rest of it, I mean, who knows what it's about, right? I mean, <laughs> I thought it was sort of a love song, but you can't really, if you listen to the lyrics, you can't really tell. No, and I think one of the nice things about the song is that it's, it is open to interpretation. I mean, the lyrics 
get across the theme that it's somebody speaking to someone else about how great the other person is, not in a I'm jealous way, but just in a, yeah, you know, you're really good at this. And uh, some people thought it was about um, Nicky Sutton from the band The Maps. Uh, he, he said, no, it's not him. Uh, some people think it's about Kate Bush. He said, no, it's not about her. So it's not really about a specific person, but I think that idea in the lyrics of uh, being grateful to be around someone who's great and really wonderful at what they do is a pretty relatable theme. Yeah, no, it was uh, it was a great song. It, it, it still is. I still I still listen to it. I still listen to it this day. I think Fisherman's Blues, their uh, album they did later, was actually a better record, but. That's their their great song. We're going to end with an '80s classic, and I love the fact that you pick some real some real classics in here. I mean, "Dear Commissar" by Falco. To add to sort of the the German Austrian, the German language contingent, at least on your list. Uh, but this is Murray Head's "One Night in Bangkok," which is a. I'll tell you why I picked this one in a second. Always remember that Yul Brenner line. What a track that was. Speaking of playing against playing against type, I mean, Murray Head was sort of a chansonnier, right? And out, out he comes with this. It's from some musical called Chess. I mean, it was just all so hard to make any sense of it. But what a great track. Absolutely. And I I knew before I started doing the chapter that the song was from Chess, but I didn't realize until I started researching the chapter. Chess is worth a book on its own. I mean, it's been produced all around the world for almost 30 years, and it's never been a hit. It just has this cadre of maniacal fans that will go see it anywhere. And I think if it had been any other musical, one that didn't have the money of uh, Tim Rice and Bjorn and Benny from ABBA behind it, it would have fallen into obscurity and no one would have ever heard heard of it again. So, yeah, it's, it's an amazing story. It is, and and the the hit the popularity of that song too, because it just was a huge, huge hit. And it, to me, it really typified just how when you talked about how eclectic the era is, that was sort of it's kind of typified just how, what a, what an incredible era for music those ten years were, where you could have anything from the Clash to Lionel Richie to Toto to that on the on the charts, and to you know to the Oak Ridge Boys all in one all in one top ten. Absolutely. It's when I looked over the charts when I was starting out on this project. I I hate to sound like things were better then, but in in some ways things were better then because there was uh I think more openness to different sounds on the charts that uh radio and I guess uh, well we didn't have streaming services then, but outlets for music weren't as rigid and as pre-programmed as they are now. And that gave a chance for uh, a lot of different sounds uh, to be programmed on the stations with the same audience or the same demographic. And I don't see that happening now. No, no. I mean, I think part of that, too, is I remember like there were songs that I used to buy, I'd go to Sam the Record Man to buy, you know, something and then end up buying something else. I actually literally walked out of the record store with another record. You know, I didn't buy the 12 inch single of Thriller. I would have bought something like, you know, uh, something like The Hole of the Moon instead, because you just that's what happened in record stores. That's right. Yeah. One of one thing that's always stuck with me is when I was working at The Sun, one of the at the time <laughs> record, most of the major international record companies had representatives stationed in Vancouver. And I remember very clearly one of the representatives saying to me, the best thing that can happen for our label is for another label to have a hit. And I remember saying to him, why? That doesn't make any sense because somebody is buying your competitor's record. And he said, no, if there's a hit, 
people go to the record store and they buy other records. He said the best thing that can happen for the whole industry is for there to be a really big hit that gets people into the record stores. And that's so true. I, one of the other things about mixtapes, ironically, is that the record industry was telling us that making mixtapes was going to kill recorded music because people were making unauthorized copies on their own tapes from, uh, from singles or from albums that they bought. And that didn't happen either, because if there was a song that you heard and you wanted it on your mixtape and you didn't want to sit by the radio for hours with your finger poised over the record button, you went to the record store and you bought it. Yeah, it was, uh, it was a wonderful era for music. Fiona McQuarrie, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Congratulations on the book, Mixtape, 21 Songs from 1975 to 1985, if you're looking forward to in independent bookstores. You've been encouraging people to go to an independent bookstore to pick it up. Absolutely. An independent bookstore will be happy to order it for you. <laughs> Perfect. Well, thanks so much for sharing. I, I wish we could have covered all of them, but we had our 45 minutes. So thanks so much for sharing at least a, a nice cross-section of tracks from, uh, from, that, from your book. Ah, thank you for having me on. Well, this was kind of a big story today. If you think back to those who were front and center in the, uh, at the height of the pandemic. So, of course, where I am in BC, it was Dr. Bonnie Henry. And in Alberta, it was Dr. Dina Hinshaw. Well, the old advice goes, go west. And that is exactly what Dina Hinshaw is about to do. Again, she's the former Alberta Chief Medical Officer of Health. She was dismissed by the province's new Premier, Danielle Smith, uh, back a few months ago after serving in the role throughout, throughout the height of the pandemic, really. Um, like in so many cases, she was widely praised, widely praised for her calm, compassionate approach to public health um, at the outset the voice of reason in a scary time. Then she came under quite a bit of criticism, including for the medical community for loosening restrictions in mid-2021 as part of then Premier Jason Kenney's quote-unquote best summer ever, only to have to reintroduce some of those measures when COVID cases surged again. I believe that this plan will work for Alberta, but it will take all of us. Dina Henshaw has lost the moral authority to be our public health leader. We want resignation. Yeah, th those calls, that was from a doctor, by the way. Those calls would then get louder from other corners as well. She also came under fire for a six-figure bonus she was paid. Uh, still, it was really with the arrival of Danielle Smith that her fate was sealed. Smith announced that she would recruit a new, recruit a new team of advisors, made it clear that she blamed both Hinshaw and Alberta Health Services for failing to deliver the best advice and care for Albertans uh, as the hospital system was really under strain during the pandemic. What about Dr. Dina Henshaw? Do you see retaining her as your primary uh, public health advisor and why or why not? No, I will get new um, advice on, on public health. I appreciate the work that uh, Dr. Dina Henshaw has done, but I think that we are in a new phase where we are now talking about treating coronavirus as endemic as we do influenza. And so I will be developing a, a new team of, um, of public health advisors. And with that... Dr. Hinshaw was no more. She was gone. So what is she doing now? Well, she's coming to BC to take on a new role as Deputy Provincial Health Officer. She'll be working with Bonnie Henry. Uh, Henry made the announcement today saying Dr. Henshaw is on a six-month contract. Health Minister Adrian Dix uh, took the opportunity today to throw, well, just a little bit of shade Alberta's way. You know, BC is calling her extraordinary uh, uh, skills and energy and commitment 
is obviously of great value everywhere. We're absolutely delighted to have her. And she's not the first doctor to be recruited here from Alberta. Certainly won't be the last. Yeah, Alberta shot back saying, yeah, listen, we actually attracted more doctors than we lost last year, at least according to their stats. But at the end of it all, a very competent, credible public health uh, official, and there aren't that many out there, has packed up and left and come to BC. So we wanted to know a little bit more about what someone who had been in her shoes thought of that decision, thought of the way that she was uh, treated as her position in Alberta wound up. So we spoke, we called on Dr. James Talbot, who was Alberta's chief medical officer of health, that same job for three years up until 2015. He was deputy prior to that, so he really does know the role. He's now an adjunct professor in the School of Public Health at the University of Alberta, and he speaks to us tonight from near Victoria, BC, ironically enough. Thanks for your time. Thanks for having me. So did this come as a surprise? I mean, I think I think uh, when I saw the headline, I'm like, oh, that, that's an interesting move. I'm, I'm happy uh, that it happened. I'm happy for Dr. Hinshaw. I'm happy for public health. And obviously, BC is a recipient of great good fortune that she's avail- available. I mean, uh, Dr. Hinshaw is a really brilliant public health physician. She's experienced and she has great compassion. And, uh, you know, I, I'm a little concerned that with how shabbily she was treated in Alberta, that she might have lost a little bit of faith in in the profession. And so, you know, no surprise really to me that her character is such that she's really resilient and she's landed on her feet. Uh, also good news for public health because we're very thin on the ground these days and even thinner unfortunately, in Alberta. So for her to stay in public health is a good thing because you can't have too many experienced leaders who have good judgment and a good track record. It it, I, it struck me that it must be difficult to move on when you've had that position because you sort of, um, not that it's the pinnacle, but it is certainly a high-profile, uh, high-level position. And uh, where do you go from there within your own province when, as you mentioned, it, it is this pretty small world? It is. I I think the hardest thing for her and for those of us who've been in that position is that you you really do feel like you're the medical officer of health for everyone in the province. And so and public health is very broad. So I'm sure that there are many things that she still wanted to accomplish that are now going to be abandoned. You know, I think people would misunderstand and think it's about the prestige. Although it's not clear to me the physician has much in the way of the prestige of prestige, but really, it's about that feeling of being useful, of being able to make a contribution to you know your friends, your neighbors, your relatives, to people you've never even met in the province who are safer uh, because of the job that you do. That's the hardest thing to leave behind. And I can imagine in her case, given the situation she found herself in with the pandemic, there must have been things on that list that she never even began to start doing. Oh, absolutely. I mean, three years of uh, pandemic pretty much crowded out everything else. And, you know, I think the other issue for somebody like Dr. Hinshaw is that when you cut to the chase, both herself and Dr. Yu, the former CEO of Alberta Health Services, are being let go because they didn't let more people die. And, you know, that's so insane. 
it can actually get in your head and make it hard to to deal with. You know, there, there's just such a contrast between what you know to be true, which is that you made a difference and that many Albertans are alive because of the work that was done by public health. And yet uh, this criticism in public from a very small fringe who wanted both Dr. Hinshaw and Dr. Yu to be more reckless with Albertans' lives. Uh, it must be hard to get that to make sense in your head. You would have a unique understanding of this. How do you wind up being caught in the political vortex in that role? It must be it must be difficult to avoid, specifically in circumstances like we saw at the height of the pandemic and afterwards, circumstances that we've never seen before. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, uh, every, everything that I'm about to say is true uh, of public health positions like the chief MOH uh, at any given time. But they, they were, you know, as they would say in Spinal Tap, they were raised to 11 uh, throughout all of COVID. A lot of public health happens in, in places in which there's tension between two uh, forces that are trying to pull things apart. And so it's always a job that's fraught with a certain amount of difficulty. You're trying to protect the community. Sometimes that means that individual rights need to be put in a place where they're, they're being subordinated to what's good for the community. You may require a restaurant or individuals to do things to protect people around them. And that and that it causes them to, you know, have their their rights to do exactly what they want to do, put in check for a period of time and until the community is safe. You know, you have instances in which businesses are doing things that are potentially harmful to the community, you know, polluting the water so that the water supply is unsafe. So there are always going to be these tensions between two uh, opposing forces. And as public health, you're in the middle of that, particularly when you're in government. One of the other issues is who you're responsible to. Are you responsible to doing what's right by the people of Alberta? Or are you responsible to the, the political party in charge? That is often a conflict where you'll end up being talking to communications people within the government who want you to hide information or or they want you to not say things in a certain way to disguise what the situation actually is. And you're as a chief MOH, you have to decide, are you comfortable with that? Are you comfortable with keeping the truth from people who could be harmed by it. And and so, you know, that's a real tension. And and finally, and and this is why it's uh, it's interesting uh, to have uh, being an MD as part of the job qualifications, is that every MD swears a Hippocratic oath. And the Hippocratic oath says, first do no harm. And so, you know, you have a professional responsibility that is different from a minister or a premier or a, another member of of the civil service where professional malpractice to either do something or fail to do something that would then result in harm. So all yeah. of them put together cause a real 
Dr. James Talbot is with us this half hour. He served as Alberta's Chief Medical Officer of Health for three years until 2015. Uh, He is now an adjunct professor in the School of Public Health at the University of Alberta. What we're talking about is Dr. Dina Hinshaw, who was very much front and center in Alberta at the height of the pandemic. She was um, you know, really the person put in front to, uh, in terms of the province's COVID response, uh, for like many in her position, uh, that, uh, put her in a very good place early on. And then it made her the target of criticism, including from the new premier, Danielle Smith, who fired her essentially uh, when she uh, got the job, when she took over from Jason Kenney. Uh, so now Dr. Hinshaw has uh, made a move west to BC where she will join the face of BC's pandemic response, Dr. Bonnie Henry. Uh, she will be a deputy provincial officer, a deputy provincial health officer here in BC. Um, when you look at what's happening now and what we knew then, uh, I think of the US where Dr. Anthony Fauci has obviously been the target of a huge amounts of criticism, some here too. I just wonder what your thoughts are on trying to relitigate now using hindsight, what we didn't know back then about decisions that were being made. Yeah, it's a difficult question to answer because everybody's experience for what they heard and what it meant has has changed over time. And that's why I think you're using the term relitigate. In the beginning, Alberta and BC's performance uh, was very good. I mean, Canada as a whole uh, has done very well through COVID. The Atlantic provinces and the Northern Territories were world-class. You can make the case that there aren't very many countries in the world that did better than Canada as a whole. The governments listened to the science, moved quickly, stopped travel, went with social distancing, and did a good job of that. So, you know, from my perspective, this, there is no, nothing to relitigate. It's just a question of making sure that people understand what the science and the facts are. The facts are that Canada did pretty well. Now, in Alberta, one of the ways I want to relitigate it is, oh, it didn't have, have as much damage to the economy. It could have gone uh, the way they did in Texas. Texas had three times as many debt. And it, it, the Alberta economy suffering was largely because of global slowdown because of COVID and the inability to sell gas and oil. So it wouldn't really have had much of an effect on the economy to uh, have gone with laxer conditions, but it would have meant a lot more Albertans dead. And as the other half of that is that the economy is coming back People are getting their jobs are coming back. Uh, Businesses are coming back. But the people who are dead are not coming back. To me, that's the story. And the key reason, there are two key reasons why that story needs to be told truthfully and accurately. The first is that it is a triumph of individual Albertans, members, uh, British Columbians, uh, Canadians, because the, uh, for particularly the first phase, that epidemic wasn't stopped by science or doctors or nurses. It was it was stopped by ordinary people all across this country doing the right thing to look out for their friends, their neighbors, their relatives, to look out for those who had pre-existing medical conditions, to look out for the elderly. And all of us sacrificed. And that sacrifice was worth something. It saved people's lives. And so it's really important we not lose track of that in all the hype about this little piece or that little piece. And the second reason it's important is that it was science and evidence that got us there. We need our kids 
to react in a way that's accurate and scientific in the future when they face something like this. Yeah, and that that's where I was going to wind up, is that you mentioned earlier that Dr. Hinshaw may have lost faith in, a little bit in, in the system in Alberta and decided to leave. Um, do you think the way that she was treated will impact the public health role, the chief public health role in that province, so that anyone taking that job is going to know for the time being at least that there's going to be politics involved? There are two parts of that that I think are absolutely going to happen and are of great concern. Uh, the first is that the way that this government has refu- refused, particularly in the second half of the pandemic, to follow the science and follow the evidence is going to have a chilling effect on attracting healthcare professionals who have to rely on science and evidence. When you're doing things with and for people that can potentially harm them, give them medication, do surgery, et cetera, you have to be guided by science. It, it, and to, not to do so would be professional malpractice. So just trying to retain people in those professions in Alberta or attract them from elsewhere is going to be much more difficult with a premier who I, I've forgotten the number of bogus uh, supposed cures uh, came out of her, her podcast. So that's one issue that's, that's kind of critically important going forward. And the second is that uh, Dr. Yu, as the CEO in charge of Alberta Health Services, and Dr. Hinshaw, as the chief MOH, are both being let go uh, because, as I said before, they weren't uh, prepared to allow more Albertans to die. Well, if people are going to move to Alberta to fill in all the positions that need to be filled in, they're going to have two concerns. One, can I operate as a professional? I already covered that. And the second is, do I have any kind of job security? Well, you don't have any job security if the CEO of Alberta Health Services doesn't have job security. You don't have any security job security if the chief MOH doesn't have job security. Dr. Talbot, thank you so much for your time on this tonight. It's my pleasure. Thank you. 